Thanks for being a part of the Fearless Army. Drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and when you do, ask me a question in the comments. Each week, we'll compile your best questions and answer them on air. Without further ado, let's bring in the founder, CEO of Turning Point USA, uh, Charlie Kirk. He's the host of the Charlie Kirk Show. Uh, Charlie, I gotta say, I'm jealous. Uh, you know, I like to stir the pot. I like when there's sparks flying around me. And man, you, you're you've got some provocative opinions that stir in the pot. And and I wanted to talk to. You. I, I think you took my uh, speech at, in Phoenix to heart, and I'm so happy that you have. I'm just going to start where I got dragged it. Roland Martin uh, is all upset <laughs> because you spoke some truth about uh, one of the Central Park Five. Uh, that's a it's a hoax, and you spoke some. I think his name is Youssef. I think he's a city councilman now. And, and you spoke some truth about him because the guy was involved in a rape and anybody that's ever watched any of the documentaries, the follow-up documentaries that have been done, uh, these guys weren't exonerated. They got away with something. Uh, but anyway, t- you, you, what, what sparked you? I think Yusuf was in the news, I think. He got pulled over by the cops, didn't get a ticket, and you told the truth on him. Yeah, so this happened over the last weekend. Apparently he was in the news complaining that or inferring that he was racially profiled because he was pulled over and was complaining about it on social media. And I just wanted to remind people, first of all, he's a city council member and so he's a public figure, uh, who this person is. And so it's important because there's a lot of like half truths around there. So the Central Park Five, for people that don't know, was a huge news story. Donald Trump even took out a major advertisement at the time. And so there was a, the, the, the individuals that were involved at the time admitted guilt. That's important to mention. And there's all these other facts. I don't have to get so deep into it. But eventually the sentences was vacated. Now, that's an important distinction. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen legally. It doesn't mean that there was an, an acquittal. It just means that the sentence was vacated. Uh, but look, we can get into that if you want. But it is this trend of the left lifting up criminals. And it is it is very factual that Yusuf Salam was there in Central Park that evening. To what extent or everything he did that night, only God knows. Um, but this guy wasn't, for example, in Long Island, you know, running a church service that night. OK, <laughs> so he was in Central Park um, and he is now a city councilman. And so I decided to draw attention to it. Admittedly, my first tweet was incomplete. My second tweet was rather comprehensive, where I go through all of the facts associated, uh, which has gone very, very viral. And I guess I hit a nerve, Jason. Um, I thought it was just going to be kind of a, you know, an average tweet sent out, but went awfully viral. And um, I think it's important that people really learn what happened in the regard to the Central Park Five, because it's a it's a narrative that they put forward. They try to attack Trump. Look at these poor, innocent individuals. There's a lot more to the story. Charlie, I went deep down this rabbit hole uh, because the media is invested in promoting these guys as an example of 
you know, just how racist the criminal justice system is. And, and for, it was a black cop who was the lead detective on this case. And if you really want to get to the bottom of this, you can go watch their actual interviews where they, the kids, at that because they were young guys at the time, they exposed themselves. The, the, out of their own mouths, they expose what happened that night. The media has twisted it up, and they want you to believe, oh, these guys were totally innocent, and they were just playing hopscotch in the park, and a bunch of racist cops came and blamed them for raping a white woman. That is not what happened. These guys snitched on themselves. Uh, I, I, we had the guy on that actually, no, I talked a great deal about his uh documentary he did, black dude, that just exposed, just like, no, this is farcical to be saying these guys were exonerated and to be contending that they're innocent. Uh, anyway, I, I just, I was so thrilled that you spoke out as boldly as you did because I, that's where we have to get right now. We gotta quit being on the defensive and get on the offensive in terms of protecting truth stating truth and quit worrying about whether someone's gonna say, oh, he must be racist. Nah, he's just someone that loves the truth and is willing to say yes. it uh, when appropriate. If we don't do that, we're going to lose this country. And I mean, we already yeah, are, but we're gonna lose it even more. We have to break the spell. And so we have to be unafraid to call out the inconsistencies or just the outright lies that we live under or else we don't live in a free country. And this happens on so many different topics. And again, this one is not the most major, but for those people, a lot of our, your younger viewers, Jason will know this was heavily pushed as a Netflix documentary. It was a way that they were trying to attack Trump uh, because Trump went so into this story at the time and he took out the advertisement and they were trying to say, see, Trump ruined these people's lives and he went after these innocent kids and therefore Trump is a racist. And so there's all these different elements and wrinkles to it, uh, but it, it takes it takes honestly some chutzpah because the response I received was just so like, how dare you, which then makes me think I'm on to something even more, to be perfectly honest. And I wasn't the first one that, to say this. There's been a lot of ink spilled on this topic, like a lot. I guess I just happened to hit it at the right time and a big enough voice that, that caught the attention. And understand the facts around this. These individuals were marauding through Central Park. And according to all admission and factual information, they were indiscriminately assaulting people that evening. Again, they, they were not hosting a prayer meeting in the Central Park and if you were just to kind of look at some of these, this propaganda put forward by Netflix and by the media, uh, you would think that these people never did anything wrong in their life. And, and just, and we'll move on, but just for clarity, not only were they marauding through and assaulting people, that was the plan. That, 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 uh, out of their own mouth, you don't have to take my word for it. You can go watch their interviews with the police. At the time, they gathered up to go through Central Park and assault people. That was the game plan. That was the intent. It, it's amazing what, how we're able to distort the truth and build up some narrative. And then Netflix and all these other people will, will invest in that lie and that, that lie becomes facts and truth. And 
I, I, again, my speech at, at Turning Point USA was just about, hey, man, as men, we have to be bold. And, and I was particularly calling out white guys like, hey, man, get off, quit backpedaling. Quit apologizing. This country's narrative, this country's history is not something we should be ashamed of. And a lot of this stuff is being distorted. And so when I see examples of it, I, I, I get excited. Uh, and Roland Martin, you know, uh, used to be on CNN or maybe still is. Uh, he included me in a tweet and tried to, like, shame me for uh, speaking in Phoenix with, with you and Turning Point USA. And, you know, I'm not going to apologize for it. Uh, I'm, I'm very, uh, I, I don't like to use the word proud, Charlie. It's a pet peeve of mine. I, I don't think there are any good forms of pride. So I'm always searching for a different word, but I'm very pleased uh, that I'm associated with you and, and, and Turning Point. And because bold guys like yourself are, are what's gonna turn this country around and that's, I'm trying to be bold. Uh, the, the other thing that uh, you've been in the uh, Twitter, whatever universe spin cycle is is I think a very important conversation It's kind of what I really want to unpack. I think that uh, some of the things you've said recently about Martin Luther King are, are trying to open up the space for us to have a discussion about the 1964 Civil Rights Act and what that opened the door for. I think we all are in agreement that we needed to end segregation and Jim Crow laws and, and black people needed full citizenship and, and the, to what degree the 1964 Civil Rights Act guaranteed that, I think we all agree that's great. But we have to have a discussion about how that Civil Rights Act is being used and piggybacked by the LGBTQ, same-sex marriage. Right. It's opened the door for other things to be piggybacked on top of it that I don't think are good for America. And I think this is an important conversation that we have to have, and, and you've been participating in that conversation. Well, yeah, thank you. It's, it's an awfully provocative uh, conversation I started. I stand by it, and I appreciate the opportunity. I mean this sincerely, Jason, to explain it. Because there's some, even some people on the right that have been just throwing insults and they would never have me on the show to explain it. So let me just, there was one poll that prompted me to speak out about this, Jason. And I'm a Christian and I love the Lord and I know you do too. It's the most important thing in my life is when I saw a Gallup poll that Martin Luther King's approval rating was 96% and Jesus Christ's approval rating was 90%. I said, okay, we have a problem. I, I said, if, if, a, if a man who of course said some admirable and heroic things, but let's be honest, uh, lived a colorful life, and I'll get into that, has a higher approval rating than Christ our Lord. Now you have, you have my curiosity. I pair this with a series of um, shows, episodes, and also research studies we've done on our show, prompted by Christopher Caldwell's excellent book, Age of Entitlement, asking the question of what is the Civil Rights Act? What was it trying to solve and accomplish? How was it sold to the American people at the time? And how is it thought of now by the modern academic consensus? And the modern academic consensus, which now is pushing DEI and wokeism, they look at the Civil Rights Act and the Civil Rights era as a new American founding. And they look at MLK as the founder. 
They look at everything before was racist and bigoted and awful, including George Washington and Lincoln. And we refounded the country in a new regime with a new philosophy, dare we say, around anti-racism. And Martin Luther King is the unassailable figure that will then say this is new America. Now, understand at the time, of course, there were legislative priorities that needed to be done by the federal government to stop bitter segregation. I've always held that. But the Civil Rights Act went way further than that. And Christopher Caldwell's book talked about the American people thought they were getting minor legislative adjustments to say that segregation based on race is evil and wrong. In reality, what they got was the birthing of a permanent deep state of bureaucrats that were looking for racism where it didn't exist, eventually with affirmative action quotas and, and, and hiring practices, expanded beyond race into LGBTQ type issues. And so what the civil rights era really birthed was this idea that it's the federal government's job, not just to say that discrimination is wrong, but to actively go against any sort of disparity, disparate outcome and try to even the score under the guise of equity. Those are two different things, Jason. And most conservatives think of the Civil Rights Act and the promise of Martin Luther King in his beautiful statement. And I said this all along. It is a beautiful statement. I want America. I, I dream of a day where people are not judged based on the color of their skin, but the content of their character. I'm 100% bought into that. But that was not MLK's entire philosophy. In fact, after the Civil Rights Act was passed, after the Great Society was passed, after the Voting Rights Act was passed, Martin Luther King became more radical, talking about we need to restructure society, reconfigure society. We need to even he, – he almost said that he called for reparations. He didn't use that term, to be perfectly fair. But you could insinuate he talked about how we have not done a good enough job to have moral and economic justice. All that with to, to reiterate one other part, Martin Luther King was a self-described minister. He participated at the very least in dozens of extramarital affairs on his wife. That is well documented. He definitely participated in orgies. And according to certain government documents, which again, they're FBI documents, so they might be real. They might not be because we don't trust the FBI. That he very well might have encouraged and laughed while a woman was being raped uh, in a hotel room uh, in one of his very famous orgies. When a man of the cloth who says he is a um, he's a man of God does that sort of pattern or behavior, I don't think he should have a higher approval rating than Jesus. So how do we explain that? We explain that that we have built this mythology around MLK in the modern era. Now, some myths are important, Jason. I'm actually okay with certain myths. I'm okay with certain people of history being larger than life and something we aim towards and something that we want to lift up. But we must be very careful when we do that. I, I think people that we lift up should be Washington, should be Lincoln, should be Jefferson, the actual founders of the country, where MLK, in my personal opinion, and based on every objective analysis, he actually gave us more race focus and, and less emphasis on character and conduct. Because here we are 60 years later. Do we talk about race less or more in the last couple of decades. I'm not only blaming MLK for this, but his core driving philosophy was not about a colorblind society. That is a line in one of his speeches. He would actually be closer to a race Marxist 
almost akin to a DEI type philosopher if you go deep into his writings, especially later in his life. So I'm glad that we went after it. We went, we did it in a very thoughtful way. Um, and I think we as conservatives and Christians must reconsider some of the mythologies and some of the icons and the symbols that we hold up, especially as we try to reorient our, reorient ourselves in a broken culture. And so just for my understanding, because I, I caught wind of this rather late or and not in real time, was this a series of shows you were doing or did you write something specifically that triggered people? Yeah, so it was a series of things. I gave a speech at, at AmFest. It was a breakout speech, and we posted it as a podcast where I said MLK was not a good guy. He's not who you think he is. And I will stand by that. I think a man who calls himself a minister who cheats on his wife dozens of times is not someone I'd consider a good guy. I'm not going to use the word evil. I, I never said that. I said not a good guy. Wired magazine caught wind of that, and they also there was one sidebar. Where I said, "Hey, on MLK Day, we might do like a four-minute segment, you know, kind of talking about this." So they run this huge preemptive story. Jason Charlie Kirk plans to go after MLK, and you know, kind of going off your speech, I could have done the old conservative thing. I could have hid in the corner, said, "You know what? I'm so sorry. How dare I?" Because I saw the chatter increasing. I saw the right-wing intelligentsia saying, no, 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 Charlie, it's a career ender. You don't do this. You just say MLK was awesome, and you don't ask questions, and you just kind of walk away. I said, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. I think that kind of attitude is destructive and wrong. And we felt the pressure that day. We were getting text messages of people saying, Charlie, this is going to end your career. Charlie, you'll never be back in decent circles. And I said, you know what, honestly, I don't subscribe that. I'm going to trust the Lord. I know what we're saying is true. We had some very good guests on. So we did an hour episode, Jason. That was it. We did a one hour episode, very factually with Vince Everett Ellison, who's an amazing black historian and author. He's excellent, who went through this. And then we had a conversation candidly with one of our producers where we talked about, hey, Civil Rights Act, good intentions. It's gone out of control. It should have been more minor in its legislative adjustments. And that was it. And the response was was disappointing because some people, instead of dealing with the substance and or my very public track record of hating bigotry and racism and also associating with people of all sorts of different backgrounds, they started to call me racist racist, racist. And I, I'm not going to get into the people who did that, but I was disappointed because I said, listen, guys, you could hate what I'm doing. You could, you could criticize it. But if you're just going to throw the R word around like a Frisbee, because I dare to question somebody who I consider to be a false idol of the modern cult of anti-racism, when in reality, there are much better figures such as Billy Graham in the 1960s, who had a lot more to do with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, who gets no credit than Martin Luther King. People forget Billy Graham had White House Oval Office meetings. Billy Graham led the Crusades for a moral awakening, and he led a sterling life as far as being loyally married to his wife and lifting up what it means to be a solid Christian. And do we have, and, and final thought of course is there's only one person in the 20th century that gets a federal holiday and it's Martin Luther King. 
I can name at least a dozen people more deserving in the 20th century of a federal holiday than MLK. And if you think at it from the premise that the modern left looks at the civil rights era as the new founding, as more important than 1776, I think it really starts to make sense. So it was one episode, Twitter freaked out. I very well could have, you know, took a knee and apologized. I don't play ball like that anymore. I stand by our comments and I'm glad the conversation that ensued. So as I listen to you unpack that, on this show, uh, and, and, and on this show, I would say a year ago, I'm sure, you know Virgil Walker, I'm sure, with G3 Ministries. And, mm -hmm. and Virgil's a regular on this show. Can we pan the camera to uh, these four guys? I got Thomas Jefferson, Booker T. Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and, 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 uh, and Frederick Douglass. Uh, on, on our wall here. And at one point, Booker T. Washington was not up there. Martin Luther King was up there. And Virgil Walker wrote a couple of pieces breaking down Martin Luther King's flawed theology. And it, it, I mean, amazing pieces. Breaking down his flawed theology and his flirtation with Marxism and all of that, and, and that perhaps uh, Martin Luther King didn't really see Jesus Christ as our Lord. He didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ yes. and, and things like that. And, and so we had a very, brought Virgil on the show and we probably talked about it for 30, 45 minutes. And then probably over the next month, I dealt with what Virgil wrote and said. And I, go, I said, yeah, we're gonna bring Martin Luther King down. We're gonna put Booker T. Washington up. So I've already, just from a theological standpoint, I've already been there with you, and, and it's not that I don't dislike Martin Luther King, I don't have any animus towards Martin Luther King, but I'm like, hmm, do we really understand him in context, theologically, and then to, to your point, which I've had to consider, it's like, hey, what all came along with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and what did it open the door for? And that's important mm -hmm. because the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and so these were good intentions. But if that uh, tree produces poisonous fruit, I'm gonna question that tree. And so, yes. so you can, people watch this and say, well, hold on, man, Charlie's second-guessing uh, Martin Luther King's personal life and his morality. Well, the founders, they owned slaves and they weren't perfect and blah, blah, blah. And so I don't want to really evaluate the founders' personal life, or I really don't have much interest in evaluating Martin Luther King's. But if the Civil Rights Act is Dr. King's achievement and Thomas Jefferson's achievement is the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, I'll say, well, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, look at the fruit that it produced. It was the justification yes. for ending slavery. It was the justification for ending segregation and Jim Crow. It was the justification, it's the, the foundation we stood on to create the freest, safest, most opportunity-rich place on the planet for everybody, but for black people in particular. And so if their documents produce that fruit and the Civil Rights Act produced same-sex marriage, I got some questions about the Civil Rights Act. 
should there have been some limiting principles installed in this? Let's have a conversation about the civil rights and let's take Martin Luther King and anybody off a pedestal and, and let's just deal with their tree and what fruit did it produce and we have to be man enough to have that discussion. That's beautifully said, Jason. And if you go down to the details of the Civil Rights Act, what could have been achieved through prudent legislative action was actually ended up done is that there was about 1% or 2% of it. And it built this massive anti-racist federal bureaucracy that wasn't immediately felt, actually. But 10 years, 20 years later, all of a sudden we get these bureaucrats going after admission standards and they say, well, you have to have affirmative action because they introduced disparate outcome saying that, well, your outcomes aren't the same. Therefore, you're a racist institution. Like, like, no, 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 we're not a racist institution. It just so happens that there's other factors. And of course, Thomas Sowell's amazing book, Discriminations and Disparity or Disparity and Discrimination is is perfect on this. And it's we must understand that you cannot have the modern woke enforcement without the basis of the Civil Rights Act. Now, that's not to say that every part of the Civil Rights Act is awful and terrible, but all of a sudden, when you give the federal government power to police private business, to police private action, to come in, for example, with the EEOC, which is at times overreaching, at times can get into small businesses, private affairs, that could be a death sentence to a fledgling business that's trying to make it to operate right now. And then all of a sudden it's metamorphosized. And this is one that I think your audience will find into great agreement. Now, all of a sudden, the trans thing is under the Civil Rights Act. So that what was once, you know, the intent was, hey, and I, I totally am sympathetic to this, that you have a black family that's driving on an expressway in the Natchez Trace in Mississippi, and they're running out of gas, and the only gas stations are white-owned and operated, and they say, yeah, sorry, blacks aren't allowed to get gas, and they have to pull over, and they're out of gas on the side of the Natchez Trace in central Mississippi, and they have to wait for a nice, good Samaritan pull over and give them gas that I don't want to live in that country. I think that a law that said, no, that black family has to be given gas is a good law. Let me be perfectly clear. Okay. That could have been done without creating a massive now multi hundred thousand person basic standing army throughout all the federal bureaucracies that is beyond the idea of going after a couple states and a couple jurisdictions and then the courts. And this is what's important, Jason, what the Civil Rights Act did because of the fanfare and because of the celebration and because of how it's thought of is that in most in most law schools, the Civil Rights Act is studied and revered more than the U.S. Constitution. That is a fact. It is studied and reviewed, revered more than the Bill of Rights. It's not. It shouldn't be, meaning it's a law, okay? The the, the Bill of Rights and the the Constitution is the foundational laws of the land. The Civil Rights Act is cited more. It is used more. For example, not the Civil Rights Act, but its sister, the Voting Rights Act, is one of the reasons why we can't get voter ID and we get these goofy gerrymandered districts. And so much of the frustration that we see in our modern politics is because we have these foundational elements that actually 
None of us agreed to at the time. A majority of Americans wanted to see an end to segregation. They didn't want to see new segregation put forward in, the, in eventually in anti-white hiring practices, affirmative action, or the entire federal bureaucracy having racial hiring quotas. And here's the most important thing, and I'm not saying it's because of this, but black America was getting richer, they were getting stronger, and families were largely still put together before the Great Society, Voting Rights Act, and Civil Rights Act. 60 years later, black America America is in a worse position. I'm not saying it's because of the Civil Rights Act. I'm not saying it's because of the Voting Rights Act, but somewhere something went awry. And now we have more conversations about race. We have more fixation on race than any other time in my adult life. The promise was that we were going to get a colorblind America and to offer an olive branch to some of my conservative friends that still lift up MLK. They, they want to lift up MLK because they want to turn the page on race. And I'm totally on that that program. What I'm trying to counter is the reason we talk about race so much is because we have a federal holiday to a guy that talked about race all the time. We celebrate the Civil Rights Act more than the American founding and that we have this continuation of multi decades of building and building and building where then in the 90s, you get Derrick Bell and intro to critical race theory. You get. Patrice Cullors in the 1619 Project, and eventually you look around and you have the left defending black-only dormitories at hundreds of universities across the country, black-only graduation ceremonies, and they say, well, you're racist if you oppose these things. And you look back to the Civil Rights Act and you say, maybe we overreached and we built something we didn't intend, a federal leviathan in the form of anti-racism. It's a conversation we have to have. I, I cannot, I'm gonna have to rewatch the show and, and take better notes on what you're saying because I, 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 so, I can't say that I agree with everything you just said there, but I can't say that I disagree with it either. But I know it's a conversation we have to have because there's so many elements of truth in terms of what you're talking about as it relates to the Civil Rights Act basically taught, programmed black people to look at the federal government as your protector, provider, uh, your partner in life. And it moved us away from men saying, no, I'm the protector provider. My wife is my partner. My family is my partner. As a family, we're going to protect each other. And, and now we look to the federal government for that. And that's inappropriate uh, from a biblical standpoint. It's inappropriate based on our constitution and the values of our constitution. The federal government was never supposed to be this unwieldy monstrosity that is nitpicking everybody around the country. And, and you know, yes. again, you should be, if you want to blame somebody in America, the way that it was designed was you were supposed to be like, well, let me call my alderman or my city councilman. Let me call my mayor. Let me call my state senator. Let me call your governor. Those people that you can actually possibly run into at the grocery store. That's not some people far away in the, you know, in another part of the country, often DC that ain't even a state. That's one. And then the other thing where I know you're on rock solid ground and, and I hope people can understand this, but let's look at the LGBTQ 
movement, or, and which was really just the LGB movement, I thought earlier, just the gay movement. They've added all the other letters because it's like, oh, well, we fought and we got gay marriage. And so the organizations that fought to get gay marriage, they don't just say, well, we got gay marriage, let's close shop and I'll get another career. What they do is they say, well, you know what? We gotta promote transgenderism, send us more money and pay us, and we're gonna make sure that transgenders get to play sports wherever they want, compete against girls if they want, whatever bathroom they want. We, so now the gay movement has turned into the transgender movement, and I, I'm leaving out some steps along the way, but it's no different as it relates to DEI. If, if, if your company starts a DEI department, and, and, and all, let's say there's really not much discrimination going on in your company. The DEI person's not gonna come into your office and say, well, you know, things are actually going really well here. No, <laughs> what they're gonna do is justify their position and go start hunting up. Well, you know what? There was some discrimination. Uh, a white guy on the job mispronounce LaShaquanda's name and she thinks it's racist and so I had to go have a meeting and walk him through how you pronounce LaShaquanda and, and boy, blah, blah. And that's what they do. And so they just run around trying to justify their existence and now all, every university has these overpriced DEI executives and all of their underlings and they're all just sitting out trying to justify. I, I'm gonna give you one example, and I know I'm going long winded, but I want the audience just to understand how it works. I have a very good friend who, uh, top-notch athlete growing up, and, and I was at, a, he works at a university now, and I was at some event, a college athletic event with him, and he, he works in diversity, equity, inclusion. And this was a great masculine athlete, still is, great masculine athlete. But, but he, he, he said to me that, man, look at the cheerleading squad. Uh, there ain't no black girls on the cheerleading squad. And you know that's because the university didn't do a good enough job of telling the black kids that they could be cheerleaders. And I go, what did you just say, man? This dude was a great basketball player. I'm telling you, he's one of my best friends in life. And he was a dog. And I was like, that's like saying, uh, I'll make up the name of the coach that, that he played for. I was like, did Bobby Knight have to tell you, hey, there's a rebound available uh, if you want to go get it, Jimbo? Or did you, as a dog, like, no, I'm going to go get that rebound? Did we. we we should be teaching kids to go seize opportunities, go look for opportunities, not blame a university yes. or everybody. Well, they didn't tell them that these opportunities, is that how you got where you got as an athlete or in life? No, the people that make it in this world, they go out and take things, seize things. We gotta give kids that mentality, not sit around in 2023 and pretend like black kids didn't know they could be cheerleaders unless white people told them they could be cheerleaders. That's a joke, but that's where we're at right now.
It, it is. And just to, to couple on, and I, I could go at great length, Jason. And again, thank you for the opportunity. I mean this sincerely to allow me to make this argument because it is a boundary pushing argument. And I wouldn't be doing this as forcefully as I am if I did not do hundreds of hours of research inspired by Christopher Caldwell's book. I want everyone to check it out. Age of Entitlement, where he goes through it and he says, hey, the 1960s changed America, whether we like it or not. It changed us sexually. It changed us religiously. It changed us politically, changed us economically. It changed us racially. And are we a better country because of the 1960s? And so I, I, it really started me on this track. And just to go where this is today, the EEOC, for example, which is a byproduct of the, Amer the Civil Rights Act, is suing Tesla for not having enough immigrants. So it's not just race now. It's now foreigners that they are suing Tesla for having not enough non-Native Americans. That's the Civil Rights Act. In addition, the Civil Rights Act is used where they say, hey, um, if, you, if you are not, not just pronouncing people's names, but you might be having coded bias in your hiring practices. Now, it's easy and important to hate DEI, and I think we're building consensus on that. But the argument that I'm making is that the multi-decade incubator of DEI was housed in the Department of Justice post the Civil Rights Act. The attitude, the enforcement, the precision that the DEI bureaucrats operate with was all workshopped in the Department of Justice in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And just now are we seeing it in corporate America, and we've seen this cancer metastasize. What started as a good intention to try to, to eradicate the injustices of saying that, you know, only whites can eat at the restaurant has tragically metamorphosized into a beast that has even more hatred than some of the elements of the antebellum South. Charlie, I'm going to let you go, but I, I want to say one final thing before I let you go. We may not, it may be so explosive, we don't, you know, you'll just have to duck and we'll talk about it another time. But I'm going to explain to you why MLK's immorality actually needs to be a part of this conversation. Because again, if, if your uh, signature achievement is the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and there's an argument to be made that the, the Alphabet Mafia has piggybacked that and now is running roughshod over the country, that's where your sexuality, like, it comes into play. Like, and, and I say this transparently. If, if you, when I lived a much more immoral lifestyle, I was for more sexual liberation, more freedom. I, I, I used to tell people like, ah, oh, let the gays get married. And you know, and this is years ago, I let them get married, nothing you could do. And really that was to uh, make my sexual promiscuity more acceptable or more like, I'm not really the problem. I just like to screw strippers. You know, it's, you know, so let, and so I'm open to whatever anybody else wants to do, just leave me alone. And that's, I have to legitimately ask the question, is, is was MLK's sexual immorality a part of the reason why this Civil Rights Act, and maybe he was unconcerned that 
the homosexuals would piggyback his piece of legislation. Maybe that's why there were no limiting principles ever thought about or put on this because the, the, the real, you know, he gets the credit, but there's a bunch of people that were involved in putting that together and maybe they knew exactly where this was going to end up and, and maybe they got their sexual picadillos and immorality and that's why they crafted it this way. So I think it's a legitimate conversation. There are no, there should be no sacred cows uh, in any of this. If you plant a tree and it produces poisonous fruit, we gotta examine the tree, period, end of story, and we can't let Thank our you. feelings uh, get in the way of that. If you have a higher approval rating than Jesus Christ, then I'm gonna <laughs> ask questions. Perfect. Thank you, Charlie. Awesome job, appreciate it. Uh, that's Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA. Hey, nothing's off limits here on this show. Uh, you guys that have been following along uh, for this for a long time, you saw it in real time when, you know, Virgil came in here and started unpacking his problems with MLK, and you saw it in real time when I was like, hmm. Dang, Virgil's back me into a corner. Uh, let's put Booker T. Washington up. Let's take it okay down. And so I, I'm just not afraid of any of these conversations. And as men, we have to be able to have them. And we have to be able to talk about uh, the substance of the arguments uh, more so than uh, who's making the argument, uh, what color the person is making the argument, N none of that should play a role. Let's just get in here and wrestle with the details as men. And, and if we're not willing to do that, and I'm, I'm so impressed that Charlie Kirk's willing to enter this arena and battle because that's where all men need to be. Uh, let the chips fall where they may. Uh, we'll get another uh, a great young man. Charlie's young too, but uh, King Randall uh, from Albany, Georgia, the ex camp for boys or King Randall, you guys know the work. He's discipling young men in Albany, Georgia. He's been running into a bit of turbulence. Uh, we'll have King Randall next. We are at a tipping point in America. With 400,000 children in the U.S. foster care system and a quarter of those awaiting a forever family, Christians must step up. This is Jack Graham, senior pastor at Prestonwood Baptist Church, inviting you to Chosen, a summit addressing these urgent needs on Saturday, April 13th. Chosen will empower churches to begin foster care and adoption ministries and equip families who are adopting or fostering. We have great speakers joining me, including Sadie Robertson-Huff and Governor Greg Abbott of the great state of Texas, along with dozens of breakout sessions. I urge you to join us and help make a difference in the lives of these precious children. Register at Prestonwood.org slash chosen. Lamar. So why wouldn't you put the game in his hand? So I go with Monken and then I go to Lamar because that ball he threw in the triple coverage, come on. No. Come on, man. No, 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 no. Late, high, and over the middle. <laughs> the three cardinal sins as a as a NFL passer. 
Late, so, high, I, I think, and over the middle. You done messed up, A.A. Ron! I would probably go Munkin one, and then Lamar and the rest of the players two. And and no, and, Zay, and I say, Zay and has I was to come front center with lock. Come on, that there's no way, there's no way. All right, let's roll out to Georgia and bring in our man from Albany, Georgia, King Randall. You guys know uh, King Randall runs an organization that mentors, disciples, raises young men. Uh, King Randall, uh, I think, put out a video where he was showing uh, young men the proper etiquette uh, for eating dinner, what forks to use and all that. And uh, he was accused of teaching the young boys uh, how to be white uh, rather than how to eat properly at dinner. Let's play the video and then we'll bring King Randall in. Lower your hand, put the, the handle of the fork in your, in your palm, the handle of the fork in your palm, good, and we're cutting. And pivot, good job, good job. Take your time, chew with your mouth closed, please, remember. Close the lip and cut. Okay, great job. Now, because you have salad, salad dressing all over your lips, what's your pause position in European style? Upside down V. Fork overlapping the knife. Good. Now you take your napkin, place it on your index finger, and dab. Tastes good, don't it? Good job. Now place it back on your lap. I'm so proud of you. Great job. All right, Randall, explain yourself. What are you doing here? You're corrupting these young men. You know, man, uh, you know, we try to give our students a different variety of teaching uh, at our program and in our school. And uh, one of the things that we decided to do, because most people see us, you know, working on cars and things like that. We also want to teach them how to properly dine because uh, most people go and eat, but everybody doesn't dine. Uh, so we want to give our boys a, an experience of, you know, having some American culture because this is where we live. Um, so most people here do European style or American style. Um, and so we taught them American style and European style dining uh, at this particular workshop. And the students actually enjoyed it. They had a blast. And it was not just teaching them, you know, how to eat, but it was also teaching them, you know, proper manners, proper greeting of the day, the types of uh, conversations you have at the table with different people, etc. So this is a, a very, you know, informative workshop and, and I came under a little bit of fire for it. So, Randall, how are things going? And, and you know, it's probably, it may have been a year since we've had you on or six months at least. H how is, how is your organization doing? And, you know, to give us, some inspiration about some of these success stories I'm sure you're producing. Absolutely. Uh, the, our students are doing extremely well. Uh, we've had this program since uh, 2019 when I started it, when I was 19 years old myself. And uh, we've been teaching kids how to work on cars, work on houses, such as changing oil, changing brakes, uh, reading, because that's a big issue where we live or uh, in our hometown. Uh, we have some of the lowest uh, test scores and reading scores uh, in our state. Um, and that's a huge issue for us. 
So that's why I started my own school. But we've had so many success stories. Um, recently, we had a student um, who was, who actually wanted to rap before he came to our program. And I actually taught him how to work on cars when he was about uh, 16, 17 years old. He stayed with me for about two more years. He went to college and now he's a diesel mechanic and he has a job at Ford uh, right now uh, working on cars. Um, and this is just one of my success stories that we've had in the program uh, through you know the help of God and through uh, just uh, mentorship and consistency. But right now, the school is doing fine. Uh, we've still not been able to get back into our main campus after the vandalism. Uh, we've been battling, you know, people as well as our city government trying to keep our school open. But, you know, we're still making it happen um, how we are. So. I, maybe the last time I had you on or I know we talked about it, that I saw a video of where people in the city council were stopping you from moving to a certain neighborhood or area or their neighborhood or area. How did that end up concluding? Uh, yeah, so the, the city of Albany, uh, they, well, the county commission, they declined our uh, request to rezone our, uh, well, part of our 40 acres of land that we own to build a recreation center on a more impoverished side of town. Um, on the south side of town of Albany, there are no rec recreation programs, no programs for uh, kids on that side of town, but yet that side of town has a lot of crime and a lot of uh, issues there. And we serve many students on that side of town, uh, but there were some older people who didn't want us to come to uh, that their neighborhood they, want, they said they want it to stay just like it is, and they don't want any of our troubled kids coming to bother their neighborhood. But, uh, you know, they, de they denied our request. Um, they said we could possibly be uh, creating cocaine in our science labs that we have and uh, making heroin. <laughs> so this is what we were told, and making fentanyl. So uh, we plan to reapproach them in June, um, and I'll be making a big post about that for people to come support us because this time I'm going to bring the fire. I tried to go nicely, but uh, we're going to go back and uh, almost demand for our you know property be to be rezoned because we need to help the kids. And I'm like, I don't understand why we have to go through so much trying to help children. It's, it's ridiculous. Well, for our audience, and I'm sure you've been introduced to Randall before, but I just want to remind he's just 23. And so many people think <laughs> they're too, yeah, 24. They think they're too young to make a difference. And, and actually, you're not too young. And I'm here to tell you, you're not too old. You're not too fat. You can make a difference. You just got to find your lane. And, and Randall, you seem to have found your lane. And I'm, is there a way... Let, let my audience know, let myself know how we can support you. The, the work you're doing isn't cheap, and I'm sure everybody uh, would be happy to pitch in. Sure. Uh, our website is the xforboys.org. Uh, that's T-H-E-X-F-O-R-B-O-Y-S.org. Uh, you can go there to see all of our photos, videos, uh, see how to volunteer if you stay close by, and also how to donate. Uh, we have many different forms for people to be able to donate. Our program is free to the children. We don't charge for anything that we do. We get them haircuts. We feed them uniforms, clothes, shoes, everything uh, we do on our own dime. Um, and that's from people like you who uh, pay attention and who listen to our stories. So we thank you for all your support. Well, we're looking forward to uh, we're, we're hoping to bring Randall here for Roll Call 2.0 at the beginning of, of June. And we'll, we'll we'll put a microphone in front of Randall and, and have him give a speech and, and tell people about what he's doing. Looking forward to that, Randall, and looking forward to continuing to support you. And, uh, you know, I, I wish someone had taught me how to properly eat at a dinner table. Uh, <laughs> I was, my mother did the best she could, and so did my father, but I was hard-headed. 
Uh, <laughs> anyway, thank you, Randall. Understood. Have a great weekend. All right, uh, that's King Randall. And that's our show. We'll play some tomorrow, and we'll see you next week. Waiting for the countdown, coming off the breakdown, standing in line for freedom. Looking for a breakout, feeling like a standoff, nothing in life like freedom. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation, we all just want to have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone, I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back, we are receiving, all deceiving, we all want to be free. We want